Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. The day I applied for a bursary from the Arts Council, I also entered a 10-day retreat to learn Vipassana. I was in my mid-twenties and a series of events had dragged me back to my parents' spare room, surplus among the toe-stubbing blanket boxes and childhood famous fives. Vipassana, a school of secular meditation, was suggested to me as one of several balms for what I called depression, but think of now as a crushing crisis of existential origin. Nothing about my life as an adult made sense to me. On that day, before surrendering my phone and all connections to the outside, before signing a contract to say I would not speak or eat after midday or kill a living thing, I came and went from the laptop. At the moment I needed to leave, I hit submit. The process had a ritual feel. Months earlier, I had been walking down Henry Street when suddenly my misery thickened into panic and abandoning plans, I rode the bus to my house share and stood in the bedroom as sunlight sliced through the Venetian blind. I knew I should sit, but I couldn't sit. As I stood, frozen with dread, my ambient unhappiness seemed to speak to me. It said, nothing will ever be good for you. What I recall now are the bars of sunlight on the tossed-up bed, how radiant was the world, even in, or perhaps because of, this suffering like a pounding soundtrack. After submit, on the day of the application, I was dropped to an off-season boarding school and sat in the canteen among cheerful people who all seemed to know each other. I answered questions from a clipboard. Did I have experience of psychosis? Could I commit to the mental stress? An attractive man with heavy affect, an aura of sorrow at odds with his looks, asked me a few more. I was afraid I mightn't pass, because I was so citified and nervy and ill-fed. The others seemed insanely sedate. When the first gong went, we fell silent. We would stay that way for over a week. During those ten days, I didn't think about the book I was planning to write, but since then I have gone back again and again to a constellation of smells and images. Avoiding eyes and not speaking while staying close to people, sleeping in a dorm next to strangers, was intimate. I came to approximate a St Francis banality, listening for birds and differentiating between everything, noting the achingly detailed textures of grass and trees and pebble dash. The meditation sessions were anguish both because sitting in lotus caused my legs to throb and because my addiction to sugar meant abstaining amounted to withdrawal. At six in the morning, after a monkish two-hour session of meditation, the smell of prunes stewed for porridge would derange me. Every day was downhill after the prunes. Afternoons in particular were long and entirely static. The buzz of distant farm machinery or traffic carried only to be flattened against the monumentally collaborative silence we sustained. At intervals we listened to recordings of our Vipassana teacher, S.N. Goenka, explaining the technique. We attended to a motto often, work patiently and persistently and you are bound to be successful. In the recordings, Goenka repeats the last part with especially sweet goodwill bound to be successful. I fought the silence. 
my head churned with violent stupidity. I became amazed at my own regrets and grudges and limitations, which all seemed mortifyingly petty, and by the earworms that curled into my head, CD B-sides from the noughties, Salisbury Hill. One day the rage reached a pitch so intense my ears popped, blood rushed to my head, I broke out of the Dama Hall to charge round the playing field mouthing screams. Someone came outside to beckon me back. You were not supposed to use the course for personal transformation. It was study. But I did, because I am selfishly eccentric and addicted to sugar, and never, ever going to calm down. I emerged from Vipassana in a state of exquisite tenderness, torn apart by the first radio jingle I heard. But the stillness I'd accessed remained with me for a long time afterwards. I can still climb into it now, like zipping up a warm tent. I didn't get better at once, but I was never so unwell again. And then, shortly afterwards, I was awarded the bursary. It set me materially free. I moved out and into a happier house share and cleared out a rickety workspace and pinned a handwritten note at eye level. Work patiently and persistently and you are bound to be successful. It is a simple sentiment which, on examination, asks for committed effort. Patience and persistence can feel like little sneaking motions in the greater face of pain or loss or indifference or cruelty or loneliness. But they can work, frame by frame, row by row, if lightened with a little grace. I feel now like I asked for something and it was delivered, however indirectly, to me. I cannot help but feel that I owe something back. In the culinary Tower of Babel that is modern Ireland, where every city and town can boast a wide variety of cuisines for the discerning diner, it's easy to forget that it wasn't so very long ago that we were a wasteland for anyone in search of foreign food. While those of a certain age have heard tales of the legendary Jamais, the Russell and Hibernian hotels, beacons of haute cuisine in decades past, the truth is that 20th century Ireland was very slow to adopt worldly tastes. A recent anniversary dinner with my wife at an excellent new Italian restaurant reminded me that some of the first to break down those barriers came from Italy. Now, in this case, I'm not talking about the many industrious immigrants who came mainly from the province of Frosinone, families like the Cafolas, the Borzas, the Macaris who came early in the last century and established chippers and ice cream parlours that revolutionised Irish eating habits. I'm talking about those brave pioneers who first offered at least a version of Italian cuisine to Irish palates. Depending on when you came of restaurant age, that might mean Ostinelli's of Hawkins Street in the 40s and 50s. 
beside the Theatre Royal and the Regal Room Cinema, a prime location, when the queues weren't actually blocking your entrance. Sadly, like those palaces of entertainment, Ostinelli's fell to the wrecking ball that cleared the way for that loathsome office block, Hawkins House. If you came to Dublin in the 60s or later, your first taste of Italy might have been at that unique institution, the Coffee Inn in South Anne Street. Remembered for spaghetti in a thick tomato sauce and frothy coffee, the cappuccino had not yet landed. It was also notable for a relaxed attitude to students and artists who found hours of shelter there for the price of a single cup. It also hosted early meetings of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. By the 70s, you were almost spoiled for choice in your quest for pasta and veal dishes. Nico's of Dame Street, Covadis and Le Caprice in Andrew Street and Bernardo's in Lincoln Place, a favourite of President Mary Robinson and her husband Nick, from their student days right up to the night of her election. Slightly more upmarket was the Capriol in Camden Street, presided over by Giuseppe Peruzzi, moonlighting from his day job as outside broadcast supervisor in RTE. The restaurant was very popular with conoscenti of real Italian food and during the gaiety seasons of the Dublin Grand Opera Society, it was impossible to get a table before or after the performance. At the other end of the scale from the Capriol, pizza. It's hard to believe that this now ubiquitous staple was a comparatively late arrival in Dublin. The earliest reference I've come across is in a newspaper ad for the aforementioned Ostinelli's in 1957. But ten years later... The Honey Bee, in Wicklow Street, was able to proclaim itself the only spaghetti and pizza house in Ireland. The proprietor there was Dr Dionisio Tullio, father of my dear departed friend Paolo Tullio, who did so much for gastronomy in Ireland in later years, and who taught me a valued life lesson. There is no place on a pizza for anything yellow, so no pineapple, no sweet corn, and presumably no inferior cheeses substituting for the snow-white mozzarella. I've deliberately saved one pioneer till last, if not actually the first Italian restaurant in Dublin, the one with the longest legacy, the Unicorn. Established in Merrion Row in 1938 as an Austrian restaurant, it was transformed in the 1950s by Renato Sidoli and his family into the sort of place where... Everybody knows your name. And habitual male guests were addressed by their host as Dottore, what my father referred to as being conferred with a unicorn doctorate. They eventually moved around the corner to Merrion Court, and in the 1980s and 1990s, Saturday lunch there was probably the closest Dublin has ever had to the Algonquin Round Table, with every political and media mover and shaker worth their salt gathered to chew over the week's events, having perhaps stopped off on the way to also give the listeners to Rodney Rice's Saturday View the benefit of their wisdom. To gain admittance, though, you first had to get past Domenica Fulgoni, or Miss Dom, as she was known to all, Renato's sister-in-law and a formidable gatekeeper. The unicorn eventually changed hands and then closed its doors, apparently for good, last year, 
ending one era in Dublin's history of Italian dining. Thankfully, new establishments have sprung up to carry on the tradition, and long may they prosper, just as long as they don't put anything yellow on the pizza. A girl went back to Napoli Because she missed the scenery The native dances and the charming songs But wait a minute Something's wrong In one of his most famous sonnets, William Shakespeare makes a reference to the darling buds of May. Thanks to our warm spring, the trees in our parks and gardens are gradually displaying their foliage in all its beauty. Some of the most attractive trees in the land are to be found in the viceregal walled garden of Arasanukthroin. One of the avenues has a collection of ceremonial specimens each with its own story to tell. Among them is the magnificent Californian redwood in the Queen's Walk, so-called following a visit to Dublin by Queen Victoria. There is also a magnificent copper beech planted by the Viceroy, Viscount Fitzalan of Derwent, 100 years ago. The Viceroy, or the Lord Lieutenant, was the King's representative in Ireland. The citizens of Dublin traditionally had a bittersweet association with the pomp and ceremony of the aristocracy. For an insight into this relationship, we turn to the pages of Ulysses. Joyce depicts the otherworld passage of the viceregal cavalcade through Dublin. The viceroy was a real-life English aristocrat, William Humble Ward. Earl of Dudley. In the Wandering Rocks episode, he departs the Viceregal Lodge and passes King's Bridge before travelling along the quays. As he travels through the city, we meet a cross-section of the citizens, some merely curious, others respectful, and some downright hostile. We encounter John Wise Nolan, who smiles with unseen coldness at the sight of the Lord Lieutenant and Governor-General of Ireland. The Viceroy's carriage was pulled by a pair of glossy horses, their harness rattling thanks to the cobblestones. The destination was the opening of the Mirrors Bazaar to raise funds for the Mercer Hospital, a typical event in the lives of the Dudleys who, to be fair, did much charitable work. As the ceremonial cavalcade negotiated the streets in Joyce's Dublin of 1904, few could have anticipated that the days of the Viceroy were numbered. Seventeen years later, change was in the air. Viscount Fitzalan of Derwent took up his post in the Phoenix Park. Tongue-in-cheek, Prime Minister Lloyd George wished the new Viceroy well, hoping that he would have a nice, tranquil time once he exited London. Lloyd George believed he had pulled off a masterstroke by appointing a Catholic viceroy, the first since the 17th century, and one of the leading Catholic aristocrats in England. Others 
were not so impressed. Cardinal Logue, Primate of all Ireland, responded tersely that he would rather see a Catholic hangman. Fitzalan wore his religion on his sleeve and was regularly seen in the congregation of the pro-cathedral. He had a special affection for John Henry Newman and University College Chapel associated with Newman was where he felt spiritually at home. On the 2nd of May 1921, Fitzalan was sworn in as Lord Lieutenant in a scaled-down investiture in Dublin Castle. It could be described as a socially distanced event, but some of the centuries-old emblems and symbols remained unchanged. In full regalia, he approached the dais in the Privy Council Chamber to receive the Sword of State and a Warrant of Office. He was also invested with the golden collar and insignia of the most illustrious order of St. Patrick. A month later, Fitzalan got on with his official duties. In June, he attended the official opening of the Parliament of Northern Ireland. Later, it was the RDS Horse Show. There was time to for the traditional summer soirees in the grounds of the Viceregal Lodge. The wheels of power turned slowly, almost imperceptibly. Fitzalan accepted the treaty in December 1921, but remained in Ireland until 1922, having handed over power to Michael Collins, chairman of the provisional government. Fitzalan had served a very short term in office and was warmly welcomed back in London, where he was rewarded with the Order of the Garter. In the history books, Fitzalan's name is rarely mentioned, but he is remembered as the last Viceroy of Ireland. There is one place, however, where his memory is firmly rooted. Before he returned home, he performed his final ceremonial act, a gift to the Irish people, by planting a copper beech on the Queen's Walk. A century later, the tree blossoms annually, a deep purple in midsummer, a coppery red in autumn, a glorious riot of colour, a memento to a bygone era. Curious when I hear my grandchildren, Neve and Porrick, talking animatedly to each other in what sounds to me like gibberish. Only Ogot Kretza Lutz, Seal Seal Stelida one. They are, they tell me, speaking Arta, a language known only to them. When I try to copy the sounds they're making, they tell me, no, that's not Arta with all the weary tolerance of children who have much to put up with from adults. And ignoring me, they continue their conversation. 
There are though more ways of hearing and understanding than just paying attention to the literal meaning of words. Philosopher David Abrams believes that all language is a code in which meaning is conveyed as much by the tonal melodic layer beneath words as by the words themselves. When two good friends unexpectedly meet, we hear the rippling rise and fall of their voices in a sort of musical duet, rather like two birds singing to each other. It's this, you could say, that carries the bulk of the communication, with the explicit meaning of their actual words riding on the surface of the emotions expressed, like waves on the surface of the sea. It is a familiar way of listening for me when I work with parents and young people in India through an interpreter, with my ear tuning in first to the emotion I detect in the speech I hear, rather than the explicit meaning. In our history as a species, we have gone through many shifts in how we communicate with each other. The invention of an alphabet started a chain of events which led to printing and later mass literacy, displacing the rich oral tradition that sustained humans for so long. It was only in medieval times that silent reading became the norm, as before that there were no spaces between words and a text could only be understood by reading it aloud. Another shift in our use of language was caused by radio. In The Mint, a miscellany of literature and art published in 1946, one Christopher Salmon writes passionately about his hope that this then relatively new medium of radio might save language from the damage done to it by the loss of the oral tradition. He shows how spoken language differs from the written word by contrasting a transcript of an eyewitness account from Belson on the BBC and a passage from Edward Gibbon's scholarly book on the Roman Empire. Speaking and writing, Salmon argues, spring from different senses and the scope of the ear is much smaller than that of the eye. Radio, he hopes, will make us freshly aware of the richness of the patterns and sequences of the spoken word. Words being bridges we swarm over as we seek to communicate with each other. Radio can, he believes, carry back to the ear some of the burden of the overloaded eye. Seventy-five years later, his insight seems both prescient and not, with our screen-dazzled eyes and our endless texts, emails, images and emojis. Yet, this morning, the challenge for me is the same one posed back in the 1940s. Whether a broadcaster alone in a studio can exact from you, the listener, the response you would have if we were face to face. As for Neven Porrick's invented language of Arta, well, it may now be understood by only an elite group of two. But let's remember the great J.R. Tolkien. He said the invention of new languages was his first passion. And 
He only wrote his epic Lord of the Rings to provide a world for those elvish languages. Who knows? Someday you may be listening to our broadcast in Arta. When we visualise poet Emily Dickinson, we may see one of two images. A purse-lipped, dark-haired teenager with a velvet ribbon at her throat. Or a slight woman in white, a shadow figure at an upstairs window. There is accuracy to both these pictures of the American poet. The only photograph we have of Emily is sombre in nature, and in later life she turned to white. There are three verified likenesses of Emily Dickinson. The first, an oil portrait of the poet as a nine-year-old. The second, a silhouette at 14. And the third, the familiar daguerreotype of 16-year-old Emily in a dark dress, with that self-possessed stare to the viewer. It appears the poet was somewhat camera shy. Emily Dickinson was a redhead. She had shiny russet waves, as evidenced by the lock of hair held at the Frost Library in her hometown of Amherst, Massachusetts. Otis Bullard's 1840 portrait of the three Dickinson children, Austin, Emily and Lavinia, shows Emily's red hair. But the later daguerreotype being monochrome, of course, does not. When describing her hair to a friend she had met only through letters, Emily said it was bold like the chestnut burr. To another friend, she wrote that she wore her golden tresses done up in a net cap. In Bullard's oil painting, Emily wears a peacock blue velvet dress with a lace collar. She prophetically holds a book and a rose, a nod to her twin passions, literature and nature. Like her siblings, her hair is cropped close to her head, in keeping with the conservative, unadorned style of the era. The silhouette portrait of Emily, cut by her French teacher at school, tells us nothing about what she wore, but we see her snub nose, full lips and neat chin, and that her hair is cut to the nape of her neck and kicks out at the ends in a tidy bob. The third verified portrait is, of course, the iconic one, the daguerreotype of Emily in her mid-teens, her hair severely parted, her neat, corseted dress in a contemporary, if slightly youthful, style. She sports fashionable ribbon bracelets and a dark choker, but the overall impression is one of refinement, not showiness. Here is a young person who knows herself. Neither Emily nor her family cared for this portrait, and it's said Irish servant Maggie Marr saved it from being destroyed in a bonfire. Later, needing a promotional photograph of her dead sister, Lavinia had the image doctored with softening curls and a large ruffled collar at Emily's neck. Our image of Emily Dickinson as an alabaster myth is not totally accurate. She wrote to her cousins about a dress of fashionable brown she wore, and of a browner cape and parasol that matched. She also owned a turquoise crocheted shawl and a paisley one of rich red, yellow and green. 
Her jewellery included a woven gold bracelet and a garnet brooch bright as cherries. So why does the Emily Dickinson of our imagination so often wear a white dress? Do we, in fact, superimpose a pale gown onto the body of the teenage Emily in the dark daguerreotype? It well may be that white-clad Emily suits our idea of a recluse, a nun-like, demure figure who sequesters herself in her bedroom. In fact, Emily's white dress was a wrapper, more commonly known as a house dress. This was a loose-fitting garment with no waistline, worn sometimes without a corset. It was the kind of garment that made it easy to move when doing housework. Emily and her sister were well-trained in the domestic arts by their mother. The household didn't always employ maids. Emily was as likely to be in the kitchen baking rye bread or coconut cake as Lavinia was to be sweeping the stairs. Emily's extant white wrapper is trimmed with eyelet lace at collar, cuffs and bodice and it has a row of 12 mother-of-pearl buttons down the front. The collar is wide and it's easy to imagine Emily's bountiful red hair released from its chenille snood in gorgeous contrast to the snowy dimity fabric. An interesting feature of the dress is the patch pocket where no doubt Emily kept pencil and paper for when inspiration flashed. Whatever her reasons for favouring white in later life, most likely practical ones, Emily Dickinson was buried in a white gown inside a white casket, fulfilling perhaps her poem's promise. A solemn thing it was, I said, a woman white to be. to heaven Twas a small town Lit with a ruby Lathed with down Some daylight, go out wandering, 
to this folklore that's still warm, where whispered tell of caves long gone and fading lights colors enhance. Pause there among the foxtail grass. Yes, fix your wings, they've come undone. And lift your shoulders to the moon and turn your face full to the sun. On this morning's Sunday Misalmi program, we heard Petition by Neve Campbell, A Taste of Italy by Jonathan White, The Queen's Walk by Sean Beaton, Ear of the Heart by Olive Travers, What Emily Wore by Mila O'Connor, and that was recorded at a past Sunday Misalmi live at the Donegal Bay and Bluestacks Festival in Ballyshannon. And finally, Wander Song, a poem by Moody Zach and Aria Aiken. Music this morning was Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel, Mambo Italiano by Rosemary Clooney, Trees played by Julian Lloyd Webber on cello with John Lenehan on piano, Yada Yada by Dory Previn, and I Went to Heaven, a poem by Emily Dickinson set to music by Carla Bruni and sung by Susanna de Rixton with the RTE Concert Orchestra conducted by Gavin Maloney in an arrangement by Brian Connor. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find highlights from Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.